It's a quiet summer day in the late 1960s. An American tourist and a local guide are out on Lower Foster Lake in Saskatchewan, Canada, fishing for trout. As they float in one of the deepest parts of the lake where the trout like to gather, the tourist hooks something big. Lake trout can reach nearly 100 pounds here. So as the line strains, he thinks he's got a real prize on his hook. Instead, what he hoists into the boat is a body and the dead man's hands are tied together at the wrists. The American and his guide just stand there for a moment in shock. Then the tourist says, cut the line, toss it back. He's just here to fish, not get mixed up in a murder investigation. The guide obeys, dropping the body back down into the deep water. It's a momentary decision, but the consequences will be felt for nearly 50 years because Lower Foster Lake isn't just a prized fishing spot. It's also the last place that Jim Brady and Abby Halkett were seen alive. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet an indigenous community in Saskatchewan. When two of their own went missing, it impacted more than just friends and neighbors. Their loss left a vacuum in indigenous culture that to this day hasn't been filled. Their names are James Brady and Absalom Halkett. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Kathleen Goltar, and I'm the host of a new podcast, Crime Story. Every week, we bring you a different crime, told by the storyteller who knows it best. You got one witness who can't be found. You got another witness who's murdered. We couldn't sugarcoat the story. I was getting calls from Cosby's attorney threatening to sue every day. Every crime in one way or another is a reflection of who we are as a people, as a city, as a country. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. To understand what happened at Lower Foster Lake and why this case is still unsolved, we have to understand what Jim Brady and Abby Halkett themselves knew to be true. Historically, there are two Canadas, one for white society and one for indigenous people, divided by a set of unspoken rules. Jim and Abby both worked hard to change this dynamic, but they couldn't escape it, not even in death. Their story is a microcosm of centuries of racial politics that we on the outside looking in can scarcely grasp. But what I hope this episode can convey is how that bias played out on both sides and why it obscured the truth for more than 50 years. Life in rural Saskatchewan is dictated by the seasons. 
there's fur trapping in the fall and winter, when the cold weather encourages animal pelts to grow thick. In the spring, the world hibernates. Even the ground is frozen solid. But once the summer thaw comes, the prospectors get to work. Now, when you hear the word prospecting, you probably think of gold. Men in the Old West panning for nuggets. But in June of 1967, Jim Brady and Abby Halkett are on the hunt for uranium. Canada has some of the largest uranium deposits in the world, and mining has been a staple of the region since the 1950s. Jim and Abby have been hired to assay an old claim that's come to term. That's prospector speak for someone found uranium in this area at some point, but no one has ever built a mine to dig for it. So now, Jim and Abby are supposed to go and check it out, take some samples, and see if it's worth an investment. It should be a pretty simple job. They're both experienced prospectors who've worked together for the last five summers. And Jim and Abby are more than business partners. They're old friends. They live in LaRange, a remote town in Saskatchewan where the majority of the population is indigenous, including Jim and Abby, who are Métis and Cree, respectively. 59-year-old Jim is somewhat of a legend in LaRange, a pillar of the community. Friends and neighbors describe his big personality, generous heart, and sharp wit. He's read every one of his 4,500 books in his personal library. And with that much intellectual ammo, he's never one to shy away from a spirited debate. Which is probably why he and 39-year-old Abby get along. Abby's also a leader, serving on the Lock LaRange Indian Band Council. And he's just as smart, university educated. But as author Michael Nest explains in his book, Cold Case North, Abby's not as forthright in his opinions. So even when they disagree, there's only one ego in the room, Jim's. And that combination makes for a lasting friendship. On the morning of June 7th, Jim and Abby meet up with their boss, Barry Richards. He gives them some supplies, a map of the claim site, a metal compass, and a Geiger counter to help them detect uranium deposits. Then they load up in Barry's car to catch a plane to Middle Foster Lake. Located in an area so remote, flying is the only way to get there. At the airstrip, Barry talks to the pilot and hands him a map, marking Jim and Abby's intended drop-off spot. The plane's a small passenger craft that's float equipped, meaning it can take off and land on water. There's one other man on board, Alex Sarabin, who they'll drop off at a mine along their way. Just after 3 p.m., they're loaded up and ready to go. As Jim and Abby step into the plane, Barry reminds them, he'll fly out in about a week to check on their progress and bring fresh supplies. Then they say their goodbyes and depart. It only takes about 40 minutes to reach their first stop and drop off Alec. They're back in the air in no time, heading north. They fly another hour until the pilot sees a lake. He's not familiar with the area, so he checks in with Jim. Is this the right place? And Jim says, yep, this is Middle Foster Lake. Go ahead and land. Once on the ground, the pilot helps Jim and Abby unload their gear and set up camp. Then he takes off again, leaving the men to their work. It's June, but summer in Northern Saskatchewan is a relative term. That evening, the temperature drops so low it snows, all night and into the next day. It's so cold on their first day, Jim and Abby can barely stand to be outside their tent, let alone hunt for uranium. 
Jim tries to radio Barry Richards back in LaRange to tell him about the conditions. For whatever reason, he can't get through. But the signal does reach Alec Sarabin, the guy they dropped off the day before. Alec recognizes Jim's voice on the radio and picks up. They chat for a few minutes. Jim makes some jokes about the bad weather. They agree to keep checking in on the radio at set times. And Alec says he'll try to get an update back to Barry. But the next morning, June 9th, Jim's a no-show for their 9.30 call. Alec tries him a few times on the radio, but no one ever picks up. And Jim never calls back. A week later, on June 16th, Barry Richards flies up to meet Jim and Abby at Middle Foster Lake, like he promised. He hasn't heard from the duo since they got on the plane, but that's not out of the ordinary. He knows they're working, but when Barry lands at the lake, he can't find their campsite. He walks around searching for any sign of life, but there's nothing. Like Jim and Abby never arrived. Barry gets back on the plane to circle the area, hoping he'll be able to see something from the air. The pilot makes wider and wider loops, getting further away from Middle Foster Lake. And just as the search starts to feel hopeless, Barry spots a white canvas tent at the top end of Lower Foster Lake. He has no idea how Jim and Abby ended up miles away from where they're supposed to be, but he's certain it's their site. He tells the pilot to land. Barry gets to the campsite and confirms it's Jim and Abby's tent, but the whole area is still and quiet. Jim and Abby aren't anywhere in sight. Some of their equipment is missing though, like the Geiger counter, axes, a compass, and their canoe. So even if they camped on the wrong lake on accident, they could still be out collecting samples, doing their job. But once Barry looks around more, that shred of hope evaporates. Jim and Abby have been out here for over a week and their food supplies have barely been touched. Barry finds an entire loaf of bread, a half pound of butter, and a portion of meat that's been sitting out for so long, it's starting to spoil. There's a fresh blanket of snow on the ground, but no footprints. All signs suggest Jim and Abby haven't been at their campsite for days, and there's no sign of a struggle or an animal attack, nothing to indicate why they've left or where they've gone. They've just vanished. By the afternoon of June 16, 1967, a search party is in full force at Lower Foster Lake, looking for any sign of Jim Brady and Abby Halkett. Planes circle over the area, while dozens of Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers fan out from the abandoned campsite. They fly an ascent dog all the way from Saskatoon. The RCMP searches for 22 days. Their efforts are hampered by rain, fog, and snow. And in the end, they only discover a handful of clues. A half mile north of the campsite, they find Jim and Abby's canoe abandoned, tied to a tree stump with a pickaxe stowed in the front, but nothing else. The search party follows some tracks leading away from the canoe and find cigarette butts on the ground. About a half mile further on, they spot a single wood match on the ground. Jim and Abby were both smokers, so it seems like they did head this way. The trail goes cold after the match, until they find a makeshift wooden raft. It's sitting 12 miles to the south of Jim and Abby's camp, 
on the shore of another lake. It looks like the logs were cut recently, so the RCMP assumes Jim and Abby built the raft. They were the only ones known to be out there. And they find something else nearby too, an extinguished campfire and evidence that someone was eating moss and roots in the area. All of Jim and Abby's food stores were back at their campsite, so it made sense they'd need to forage. They were probably here too. Taking all of this into account, the RCMP develop a theory about what happened. They propose that a few days after they were dropped off, Jim and Abby must have left their campsite to conduct survey work, assuming they wouldn't be gone long. This explains the missing equipment and why they didn't bring any food with them. The men traveled north by canoe, tied it up on the shore, and then walked into the bush toward the claim site on their map. They smoked along the way, dropping the cigarette butts and the match. But not knowing that they were on the wrong lake, Jim and Abby didn't realize the map they were following, the one taking them deeper and deeper into the wilderness, was useless. And they must have gotten so lost, so completely turned around, they couldn't find their way back to the campsite. Once Jim and Abby realized they were lost, they must have tried to head south toward the Churchill River, knowing that it would lead them out of the wilderness. To get to the Churchill River, they would have had to cross a large lake, so they built the raft. Along the way, they lit a campfire and tried to survive by eating moss and roots. But then something happened before they could use their raft. Maybe they were attacked by a wild animal. Maybe they died of exposure. Maybe they got sick or injured or starved. Whatever the case, the RCMP are near certain Jim and Abby didn't survive. The reason they haven't found their bodies is probably because they were eaten by bears or other animals. Once the RCMP settles on that explanation, the official investigation into the disappearance of James Brady and Absalom Halkett ends. The Mounties pack up, satisfied that the case is closed. But this episode is far from over because there are issues with this official explanation. Issues that Jim and Abby's friends in LaRange are quick to point out once they catch wind of it. Jim and Abby had spent years living and working in the bush. As far as their loved ones are concerned, even if they were on the wrong lake or had the wrong map, the idea that they got so lost they couldn't find their way back to their own campsite is just ridiculous. Plus, Jim and Abby's canoe was found tied to a birch tree stump. It seems like a small detail, but their friends insist it's important. Any bushman worth his salt knows birch stumps are quick to rot. They're easily uprooted. One strong current could easily pull the stump loose and send your canoe floating away. Jim and Abby would never have tied their canoe to a birch tree stump, which means it must have been someone else. Their loved ones also don't think Jim and Abby built that wooden raft either. During the search, the RCMP asked a local indigenous man to look at the cuts on the logs to determine when the raft was built. He said recently, but the man later explained to journalist Marie Dobbin that recently meant within the year. His best guess would be that the logs were cut in the spring before the ice had thawed. Jim and Abby probably didn't make the cuts but for whatever reason, the RCMP heard recently and ran with it. What's more, the raft was constructed with four rusty metal nails. 
the RCMP matched these nails to an abandoned log cabin in the area. So whoever built the raft presumably tore them from the cabin, but the cabin was located on the opposite side of the lake. The same lake Jim and Abby supposedly built the raft to cross. So if they didn't build the raft, the last true sign of Jim and Abby was the wooden match the RCMP found. That's where Jim and Abby's loved ones believe the search parties should have continued looking. But that's not what happened. Once the RCMP found the raft, they shifted their focus to the south. And lastly, Jim and Abby's community is quick to point out that the RCMP's theory ignores the items they didn't find. Jim and Abby's Geiger counter, the metal compass, and their axes. Wild bears could have eaten their bodies, but not their equipment. So where did the tools go? Did someone else take them? Now, Jim and Abby's friends agree with the RCMP on one thing. Both men are probably dead. But unlike the RCMP, they don't think it was an accident. In fact, when one of Jim's closest friends heard the news that he was missing, he immediately responded by saying, they killed him, they killed him. See, Jim Brady was a lot more than a prospector. He was an outspoken indigenous activist and community organizer. In the 1930s, he successfully lobbied the government for settlement rights to grant the Métis people protected land after they'd been pushed out of their ancestral home. When the uranium rush hit in the 1950s and Saskatchewan flooded with white prospectors, Jim worked with the Department of Natural Resources to establish training programs for indigenous locals so they could take part in this new industry and gain some economic independence. Jim Brady was a man of and for his people. With a sharp mind and a strong voice, he advocated for all indigenous Canadians. They lived on this land for generations, and they deserved their fair share of it. But Jim's career as an activist made him some enemies. And when Jim and Abby disappeared in June 1967, some friends worried that one of these enemies finally decided to retaliate. I'll be honest, when I first started researching this episode, that's what I thought too. I know that violent crimes against Indigenous people are disproportionately high in Canada and the States. The erasure of Indigenous culture and the genocide against their people is all too real and still present today. So on the surface, it feels like a likely and sadly familiar scenario. Jim was killed for his politics and Abby Halkett was collateral damage. But as I dug deeper into my research for this episode, I started to question my own assumption. The truth is, by 1967, Jim just wasn't the firebrand he once was. He was still seen as a political figure, but his days of pressuring the government for systematic reform were long past. Maybe a younger Jim Brady would have been the target of a political assassination, but I'm not sure the timing makes sense to support this theory. But if Jim and Abby were killed and the government didn't have a motive to kill them, who did? Some spend years searching for answers. When the RCMP closes their investigation back in 1967, a friend of Jim's named Lloyd Matson personally keeps the search efforts going at Lower Foster Lake, organizing volunteers and hiring planes to make flyover passes. 
He keeps at it for months, basically until he runs out of money. His resolve, driven by his love for the lost activist. Later, Lloyd teams up with a man named Frank Tompkins. Frank also has a deep vested interest in finding real answers. Frank grew up idolizing Jim. His father was a member of the same activist group as Jim, the same one that lobbied the government for settlement rights. As an adult, Frank and Jim developed a close friendship. Frank even signed his name as a witness on Jim's will. In 1970, three years after Jim and Abby go missing, Lloyd and Frank start another investigation. Here's what they find. Before he disappeared, Jim apparently secretly discovered a huge uranium deposit worth a fortune. And true to his ways, he wanted to make sure that all the money reaped from the untapped mine went directly into indigenous hands. It held the type of fortune that could potentially offer the economic freedom he always dreamed about for his people. But finding the deposit wasn't going to be the hardest part. To actually stake a claim, build a mine, and harvest minerals, Jim needed money. A lot of it. So he brought four of his friends into the fold. Abby Halkett, Barry Richards, Bill Knox, and Alan Quant. They formed a development company together called Foster Lake Mines. Bill Knox was a seasoned mining promoter. It was his job to woo investors and raise money. And he was good at it. But Bill's reputation around LaRange was less than favorable. He was flashy with his money, always looking to make a deal. This rubbed people the wrong way. Given Jim's politics, you'd think he too would despise Bill, but they'd kept up a friendship for more than a decade. So when he needed someone to raise the capital for his big find, that's who Jim trusted. But that trust might have been misplaced. Apparently, Bill harbored an ugly racial bias. He didn't want to be in business with a Cree man, so he tried to convince Jim to cut Abby Halkett out of the company. Jim refused. And because his name was on the claim, Bill couldn't do anything about it. Or so Jim thought. After their investigation, Frank Tompkins and Lloyd Matson discuss a theory they have with author Michael Nest. When Jim refused to cut Abby out, Bill Knox may have decided to push them both out. They suggest Bill possibly paid people to murder Jim and Abby while they were out in the wilderness, and to make sure it looked like an accident. But because killing Jim wouldn't take his name off the mining claim, Bill needed an accomplice. And that's where Frank and Lloyd claim the final business partner comes in, Alan Quant. Out of everyone in the company, Quant probably knew Jim best. They worked together at the Department of Natural Resources and shared similar political leanings. They were so close that Quant's children thought of Jim as an uncle. Jim even named Quant as the executor of his will, which no one thought much about until Jim disappeared. Only a few weeks after Jim and Abby went missing, Bill and Alan dropped by Jim's cabin. They boxed up all of his books, letters, and paperwork and left with them. Of course, as the executor, it was Alan's job to secure the estate, so this might have just been him doing his job. Except legally, Alan didn't have executor powers until Jim was officially declared dead. And at the time he was boxing up Jim's stuff, the RCMP was still out in the bush looking for him. When Frank Tompkins learns this information, he thinks it's pretty suspicious. And his suspicions are seemingly confirmed when Jim is finally declared dead, 
and Frank sees a copy of his will. It's not the one he signed as a witness. That document was three pages long. This version is only one page, and it leaves everything to Alan Quant. Jim Brady and Abby Halkett disappeared from Lower Foster Lake in June of 1967. 55 years later, we're still trying to understand what happened to them. According to authorities, the men died in the wilderness. Frank Tompkins and Lloyd Matson are convinced they were murdered over a business deal. But the real twist is, both of these theories are probably wrong. Let's start with the RCMP. They insisted that Jim and Abby got lost in the bush because they were on the wrong lake and therefore were working off the wrong map. Those who knew Jim and Abby's skills as bushmen never accepted this premise. They'd spent years working in the wilderness. They didn't need a map to find their campsite. But for the sake of argument, let's say that's what actually happened. Jim and Abby are lost in the bush. What do they do next? Well, it almost certainly wasn't to walk to safety. Remember, there's only one way to get to Lower Foster Lake, by plane. Jim and Abby would have known how foolish it would be to attempt the journey on foot. And if they're gonna go through all the work of chopping down six trees, they would have built a bonfire to signal for help, not a raft. And yet, the lead RCMP officer, Corporal Clyde Conrad, apparently thought that Jim and Abby were fools. He even said as much when he told journalist Maury Dobbin, quote, you know, for the two people involved, they certainly didn't use their head. It was quite stupid on their part that they didn't stop somewhere and light one hell of a fire. Because you know, that time of year is fire season. If I were Jim and Abby's loved ones and I heard that, I'd be so upset. They had to listen as these officers made bold assumptions about Jim and Abby's intelligence and skill. For the RCMP to believe the they got lost theory, they had to believe that Jim and Abby were daft, hapless, reckless, and inexperienced, which are complete mischaracterizations that I have to believe were rooted in racial bias. And bias likely impacted the RCMP's investigation in more ways than one. Dozens of indigenous people volunteered during the 22-day search. Not only did they care about Jim and Abby, they were familiar with the area, and several of them were skilled trackers. But by almost every account, the RCMP officers didn't use any of that expertise. One of the volunteers later told author Michael Nest, quote, "'We didn't think we were in the right place, but we just did what the police told us to do.'" And if you're tempted to ask, well, why didn't they just say something? Keep in mind the historic power dynamics between indigenous communities and white authority figures. But like I said, the RCMP weren't alone in their mistakes. Frank Tompkins and Lloyd Matson believed that Jim and Abby were murdered by their three white business partners. They explained their theory to author Michael Nest in his book, Cold Case North. To summarize, they believed Bill Knox hired a couple of American hitmen to fly to Lower Foster Lake and pose as tourists on a fishing trip. Then Barry Richards arranged for the pilot to drop Jim and Abby off at the wrong lake on purpose. On the day of the murder, the hitmen hired a local indigenous guide to take them to Jim and Abby's campsite, then ambush them, 
and dumped their bodies in the lake. Before anyone realized that Jim and Abby were missing, the Americans flew back home and no one was the wiser. Once Jim was officially declared dead, Alan Quant forged a new will in Jim's name that left everything to him, including the uranium fortune. Then Alan, Bill, and Barry split the mining profits three ways. Now, if this actually happened, that means seven men were involved in a sprawling murder conspiracy plot. After hearing Frank and Lloyd's version of events, Michael Ness looked into each of the supposed players. The pilot was a man named Gerald Mitchinson. Five days after he dropped off Jim and Abby, Nest learned that Mitchinson actually went to his boss and told him that he thought he dropped them off at the wrong lake. It doesn't seem like his boss did anything about it, but Mitchinson did report his mistake. So if the pilot had a secret deal with Barry Richards, why would he make this confession? Then there's Alan Quant, one of Jim's closest friends and the executor of Jim's will. Frank Tompkins felt certain that the one-page will Alan procured after Jim's disappearance was a forgery, but forgery or not, Alan didn't benefit from it. When he filed the paperwork in June of 1978, he relinquished his rights to any profit from Jim's estate outside of the costs he accrued as the executor. That total came to $5. Frank was also suspicious about Alan and Bill Knox raiding Jim's cabin, making off with all kinds of paperwork. But Michael Ness speculates that Alan wasn't protecting a murder plot. Instead, he wanted to hide a different kind of secret. In private, Jim was a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. And so was Alan. At the time, the Cold War was in full swing. Alan may have been worried that the RCMP would search Jim's cabin, and find letters and papers that included names of other communists and details about the party's business. So he got them out of there, just in case. Despite the fact that Jim's fortune never materialized after his death, at least not for Bill Knox, Barry Richards, or Alan Quant, Frank and Lloyd remained convinced that Jim and Abby died at the hands of a conspiracy. And just like the RCMP's theory, I think they were influenced by personal bias. It was easy for them to imagine that a group of white men had concocted an elaborate plot to kill Jim and Abby and rob their graves, to steal a fortune promised to future indigenous generations. Because truthfully, in some form or another, it's happened to plenty of folks in La Ronge before. At face value, the two theories about what happened to Jim and Abby seem like polar opposites, but side by side, they share more similarities than you'd initially think. They're both rooted in confirmation bias, selectively choosing the facts that promote a pre-existing narrative, rather than following the fact to an objective truth, which leaves some questions. How did Jim and Abby die? Who else was at Lower Foster Lake? Well, the most likely suspect has never been publicly named, so I'll refer to him as Casey. Casey was an indigenous man who worked as a fishing guide on the lake in the summer of 1967. Bill Knox has gone on record saying that after they disappeared, it was basically an open secret in LaRange that Casey murdered Jim Brady and Abby Halkett. He apparently repeatedly bragged that he shot and killed them out at Lower Foster Lake. 
Now, Casey's confessions are hearsay, and they were never formally investigated by police, so we can't take them as proof of anything. But the same week Jim and Abby were dropped off at their campsite, Casey went missing, and Barry Richards overheard a group of tourists complaining that their guide had left them alone for three days. It's unlikely that Casey knew in advance that Jim and Abby would be camping on Lower Foster Lake, especially because they were supposed to be at Middle Foster, but it's very possible that he saw a plane fly in on June 7th and heard Jim's voice on the radio on the 8th. It would have been pretty easy to put two and two together. As for a motive, Casey reportedly grew up in the remote reaches of Northern Saskatchewan in a difficult household. I'm not sure what form this took, but apparently Casey's only lifeline at that time was his mother. She was his one consistent source of love and goodness. At some point, Casey and his mother moved to LaRange. As he grew older, Casey took on the role of protector. He protected his mother fiercely. And that's how Jim Brady apparently ended up on his bad side. Jim struck up a romance with Casey's mother. I don't know how serious it was, but Jim had a reputation in the community as a heartbreaker. And Casey apparently made it known that he hated the idea of his mother becoming just another notch on Jim's bedpost. So it's been suggested that Casey murdered Jim to put a stop to their relationship. And Abby was collateral damage. Allegedly, when bragging about the murder, Casey said he saw Jim and Abby traveling down a cliff on the northern side of the lake. Before they could spot him, Casey shot them both dead. Then he sunk their bodies in the lake. Michael Ness tried to see if there was any evidence to verify this, and he found that this story was consistent with the geography of the north end of Lower Foster Lake. And back in 1967, one of Lloyd Matson's search parties found a scratch on a rock in that same part of the lake. They believed the scratch had been made by someone docking a boat. It seemed like a small detail, but it stuck out that there was a sand beach less than 200 feet away, and it would have been much easier to land a boat there. So they wondered, why would someone choose to dock in the rocks? Turns out, it might have been access to one of the deepest parts of the lake, a spot somewhere deep enough to hide a body. A few years after Jim and Abby disappeared, either in the summer of 1968 or 1969, an American tourist reportedly pulled up a man's body while fishing out on Lower Foster Lake, but he cut the line and put it back in the water. According to the guide on the boat that day, they were on the north end of the lake, right across from the cliff, the same spot Casey allegedly mentioned in his retellings of how he murdered Jim and Abby. So out of all the theories, this one seems the most likely. Even though it was never formally investigated by police and Casey died in 2009. So we may never know for sure. Now, you might be wondering, if it really was an open secret in LaRange that one of their own murdered Jim and Abby, why didn't anyone push for their case to be reopened at any point over the last 50 years? I don't know. I always advocate for justice, for truth, but in this case, given the epidemic of violence against indigenous communities that is overwhelmingly perpetrated by outsiders, 
I'm not sure right and wrong are so clear-cut. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found the book Cold Case North by Michael Nest, Deanna Rader, and Eric Bell incredibly helpful. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Abigail Cannon, edited by Aaron Lan and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.